Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you, given you living water the woman said to him sir you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep where do you get that living water are you greater than our father Jacob he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock Jesus said to her everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mount, mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you see? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Lord, now we come to your word here and we look at this familiar passage, very interesting passage. We ask that you would teach us and you would correct us, you would admonish us through it if we need that. Encourage us and strengthen our souls as we all need and shape our minds and shape our hearts to be more like you, Jesus. Amen. Well, we see here at the, the verse 27 when these disciples of Jesus come back to him. Uh, then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman, and talking to this woman in particular. They marveled at that, and that tips us off that something strange is going here. Remember that the central theme for John 
the issue for the Apostle John is the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus? Who's Jesus of Nazareth? John is presenting that over and over. We saw the, the, the prologue there where John is forcefully declaring the deity of the Word, the Son of God. And then we see the, the miracle there at, at the wedding in Cana. And then we see his interaction with the people, his, his authority there with the temple. And then with Nicodemus coming at night and, and his dialogue with this, this scholar, this, this uh, scripture, scholar of the scriptures, of the Hebrew scriptures. And then here we have Jesus coming and meeting this woman at, at this well. And so the, the big overarching theme continues to be who is this Jesus? John tells us later in his gospel towards the end that he writes all these things so that we would believe. That's his intent, that we would believe. But who is it that we're believing in? Who, what is the content? Who, who is this one that we are to believe in? So Jesus is there and he's, uh, his disciples are baptizing. We learn that there in the verse 1. And he's making and baptizing more disciples than John. And that word making is important too because so, apparently there's some teaching that is going on. There's some conviction that is going on. And there's some repentance that's going on. The message of repentance uh, being very strong in, in the, the message of Jesus and John the Baptist. But the apostle in this first verse specifically says that Jesus was making and baptizing. Doesn't only say that he was baptizing, but making and baptizing more disciples than John. So again, just to uh, make a note of that, that there's this teaching that is going on that's noted right there in the first verse verse then we have already seen in verse 2 that Jesus himself wasn't doing the, the baptizing laying the hands on the people to baptize them but uh, his disciples were doing that he left Judea part of the reason for him, him leaving and going towards Galilee is this notoriety that had come to John the Baptist and had come to Jesus and the Pharisees were coming out and they were very intent on, on who John the Baptist is, was, and who Jesus was. Very intent on that. But Jesus was working according to the timetable of the Father, the schedule of the Father. And his time hadn't come to where he would be in full-on conflict with those Pharisees, with those religi religious leaders, yet he had some ministry to do among the people of Galilee and the uh, other areas of Israel. That time had not come, and so he's moving away from this area where he and John are baptizing and have become so popular. And John ultimately, of course, gets arrested in the Gospel of Mark. We read that in the first chapter. So Jesus wants to avoid that conflict. Not that he's avoiding conflict in itself because he'll have plenty of that, but the time wasn't quite right yet. He had some teaching he needed to do for his disciples and he had some ministry he needed to take care of in the northern region there in Galilee. So, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria and he came to this town in Samaria called Sychar. So we see here that the apostle also, as he writes this letter, uh, writes this gospel, tells us specifically in verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So there's an issue with the Samaritans. Jesus is facing that one head on. And he meets this woman at this well. And he speaks of living water. Today I'd like for us to, to focus on, on, some, on that living water and what Jesus is teaching there with the living water. There's a lot in this passage. There's worship is included, of course, in it. And we'll look at that next week. But today, looking at this living water that the Lord is speaking of. He's going through Samaria. Now the backstory is very important here, and it's very interesting also that the Jews do not get along with the Samaritans, as is pointed out here by the Apostle John. 
So we have the land of Israel, what we know as Israel today, that, that land of Israel. And in the, the time, the days immediately following Solomon, that land was divided. And you may remember the, the northern kingdom called Israel and the, the southern kingdom called Judah. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in, in the south, Israel in Judah because of the, the conflict that had erupted there among the people, among the tribes of Israel. Well, it wasn't for too long that the northern kingdom had fallen into apostasy, into idolatry, and God used a pagan nation, the Assyrians, to come in forcefully to, to conquer that northern kingdom and exile some of the residents there, many, many of the residents of that northern kingdom, again, calling it Israel, Judah, to the south. So this northern kingdom, we're talking about the, the Syrians coming in and, and take control, conquer that northern kingdom. Many of those people are taken away in exile. But the king of Assyria sees a need to repopulate that northern kingdom. So he has people, he sends people from regions that are that make up Assyria, that they have conquered, sends people into that kingdom, into that northern kingdom. So you have all, all these foreigners that are sent into the northern kingdom to repopulate. Not all of the tribes of Israel had been deported in that exile. Some were left behind. So as that was region, as that area was repopulated, those people uh, intermixed, intermarried. And so what developed was a mixed race. They became known as the Samaritans. And there was some hostility that grew out of that. Those to the south in Judah thought that they were more pure, more pure being uh, in the line of Abraham. And now there's this mixed race to the north. And so there's some hostility that's built in there. Not only that, the, that northern when those those nations came in and repopulated that northern northern kingdom, they brought with them their gods, and so idolatry grew instead of minim, being minimized. Although Judaism was still present and a force to be dealt with in that kingdom, these foreign gods came in, and idolatry was in place. So, in the mind of those in in Judah, the southern kingdom, they're looking to the north and they're seeing those that they're a mixed race now and now they're, they're adopting the gods of the other nations, their syncretism, they're pulling in this, these gods. They just didn't want to have anything to do with them. They really looked down upon the people in the northern kingdom. So the northern, they have two strikes against them in, in the north in the eyes of those in the south. Well, as you remember from our story of Daniel, things didn't turn out so well for the people in the south either. In the southern kingdom, God used, over time, used the, the Babylonians to come in and, and wiped out Jerusalem. And some of those people were exiled. And then the time passed, the 70 years passed, they came back to rebuild the temple in, in Jerusalem. So these Samaritans, this, these mixed people from the north, came, and in Ezra 4, Ezra chapter 4, we read this, that they, they came and said, we'll help you rebuild the temple. And the people in Jerusalem said, no, we, we don't want anything to do with you. You go back. We don't want you helping us build this temple because of all that you represent. So not only are they mixed and they're idolaters, the, the Jews had denied any help from the, the Samaritans. So there's this animosity that's continuing to build and to build and to build. So the Samaritans, that they say, well, we'll build our own temple. We'll, we'll do our own worship. And... They built a temple modeled after the one in Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim that we see here mentioned. We'll get into that again more next week. But they built their own 
temple, their own religious practice, monotheists, believing in one God, but it's not the pure Judaism of the one in Jerusalem. See, the people in that northern kingdom, the repopulated people, they held to believing only the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. That, that's their, that was their scriptures. They, they did, did not allow for, they did not accept the, the historical books. They didn't accept the wisdom books. Uh, they didn't accept the prophets that were so strong in, in, in exhorting people in the worship in Jerusalem. The people to the north in that northern kingdom, the Samaritans, they didn't have any of that. They didn't believe that. They held to those first five books. So they set up their their own, own temple there. And they did their own worship. Well, you can imagine how that went over with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They didn't think too much of that. They had all of this other going on. So there's this building, animosity. And, and so the, finally, there comes a time when there's some people out of the, 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 the south. They go to the north. They go up to that, that kingdom and they, they fight against that people and they seek to destroy that temple. But right before that took place, you remember again from our study in Daniel, how the Greeks came in and they had control of that area of the world. And so the Greeks said, well, we need to get control of the southern kingdom. And I wonder if the Samaritans would work with us if they would align with us, and then we'll, we'll have force on that southern kingdom. And they did. The Samaritans joined with the Greeks and to be a force against to conquer that southern kingdom. Ooh, ooh, of course you can imagine what was going on in Jerusalem with that kind of idea. And as I, as I just mentioned, finally it had boiled up to where a group came out of Jerusalem went to this temple in the northern kingdom and destroyed it. Oh, you can imagine how the, what the Samaritans thought about that. They would just be furious about that. Well, in 9 AD, Jesus is alive, but it's about 20 years before his ministry, earthly ministry takes, takes place. There's a, a group out of the north that comes and scatters human bones in the temple defiling the, the, the courtyard of the temple. Ah, enraging the people in Jerusalem. So sometimes we think of the, the Samaritans as, yeah, well, they're, they're the mixed race people. They're not the pure lineage of, the, of Abraham as in, in the south. But there's more that goes along with that. There's the idolatry. There's the building of their own temple and of their... Uh, of their own religion, the rejection of those in Jerusalem, and they reject the help of those in the north. But just over centuries, this had been developing and swirling so that now, at the time of Jesus, we have this statement here by the Apostle John in verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A long conflict, a long history in that way. In fact, it says that Jesus goes to Galilee and he goes through Samaria. And the historians will tell us that in that time, at the time of the festivals, people did travel from Galilee to Jerusalem and they traveled in a direct route through Samaria. But for those that were religious, strong religiously, I mean, they're very devoted religiously, they would go out of their way. It was about a three-day journey, two-and-a-half, three-day journey from Jerusalem to, to Galilee. But they, the, 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 really, the, the devout religious people wouldn't want to have anything. They wouldn't want to be defiled by Samaritans. So they would go out of their way over towards the Jordan River. Some historians say the west side. Some say the east side. But they go up that region of the Jordan River, they would go around Samaria and then come into Galilee to the north. They take about six days, take about twice as long to go around Samaria. Don't want to have any dealings with Samaritans. So now we can get grasp some of the picture as the Apostle John writes his, 
in this account here. Here's Jesus. He comes to go to Galilee. He goes right through Samaria and he sits down at a well. And not only that, he talks to a woman. The apostle points that out to us very clearly in verse 7. A woman from Samaria. Notice that. A woman from Samaria. Two strikes against her. A, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, which was unusual, by the way, because apparently they didn't think that they would be religiously defiled by eating the food that had been purchased in Samaria. Other religionists would have avoided or brought their own food or avoided eating food from there, but they had gone away to buy food. And then it, it, it says again, the Samaritan woman said to him, it wasn't that the woman said to him, the Samaritan woman. John's emphasizing that's this kind of this kind of people. This woman represents all that I, I just described, all that long history in that northern kingdom. She represents that she's a Samaritan woman. And so Jesus is talking to her. Well, first thing we can observe about Jesus is this idea that he had to visibly do something. He had to do something. In verse 4, we read, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria in verse 4. Now, he didn't have to in the sense, as I just mentioned, he could have gone around. He could have taken the long route around. But Jesus is on a divine appointment here. He, he under divine compulsion, a divine appointment, a divine schedule from the Father, he is on a mission to meet this woman. He's on a mission to go into Samaria to meet this woman. He's of necessity. He has to visibly break down some walls, break down some walls of hostility that divide creatures, remember, made in the image of God. Every human being there today made in the image of God. There's great hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, as I've tried to describe briefly. In that great hostility, Jesus comes in. He visibly needs to, to break that down. So his, he's teaching his disciples and also teaching us through the Apostle John. He's visibly breaking down these barriers and these walls. And those walls between people made in the image of God have continued over the centuries, century after century after century. There's hostility between people. There's resentment, just like the Samaritans had resentment against the Jews. And the Jews had resentment against those Samaritans. There's resentment and there's bitterness against the groups of people. And here Jesus is in this classic example. He comes into Samaria and he sits down with this Samaritan, a rabbi. What is he doing? Well, when the Pharisees were interacting with Jesus in John chapter 8, we'll see this in a few weeks. If they really wanted to insult Jesus, they call him a Samaritan. <laughs> in John chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The link there. You're a Samaritan and have a demon. They really want to get under his skin, calling him a Samaritan. Of course, it doesn't work. But Jesus sees the Samaritans as, as God's creations, beautiful creatures of God. Made in the image of God. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man, mankind. Let us, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. See, the Jews are looking at the Samaritans and there's something less. There's something to dis be despised. 
If we were looking at it as a caste system, they're at the lowest level of the caste system. They're hated and despised. And the Samaritans don't think too much of the Jews either, but the truth of Scripture, and the Samaritans, of course, are relying heavily on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, so they have Genesis. God made every human being in His image. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul helps us to understand some of what would be going through the mind of Jesus as he's sitting down to meet this woman. Of course, Galatians written after this occurrence with the woman, of course, at the well. Paul writing in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28-29, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Or what about Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writing again, chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. The apostle is writing to Gentiles who have not had the covenant promises of God, have not been exposed to that, have not been born into that. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Jesus comes, the apostle Paul reports, he comes and breaks down dividing walls. Dividing walls of hostility. And we can see this glimpse in the ministry of Jesus. He comes into Samaria, meets this woman. And one of the big pictures that we see is he's on this divine mission, this appointment to break down this hostility between Jews and Samaritans. He's offering grace. He's offering mercy. He's offering compassion. He's offering living water. He's offering eternal life to those who were despised in the southern, despised by those in the southern kingdom. He's dealing with the resentment. He's dealing with the, the bitterness. So a lesson for us to grasp in that right as we see this picture, how this solution, what, what is the solution between the hostility between peoples? between people like the Samaritans, between people like those in, in Judah, those in Jerusalem. What is the solution to that? And the solution is living water, eternal life that is given by Jesus Christ. That is the solution to break down those walls of hostility. So he comes in and he's doing this, giving us this magnificent, picture towards uh, of his relation to these outcast people these outcast Samaritans but not only that there's this outcast woman of course that's at the center of the story we don't know her name but she is in fact an, an outcast and she's there at noon which is important for us to grasp in verse 6 Jesus is sitting beside the well it was about the sixth hour that's noon using a hebrew 
clock starting at sunrise, the sixth hour being noon. It's hot. And the woman from Samaria comes. Well, typically, women came, and it was the responsibility of the women to gather water. Women came to gather their water early in the morning in the cooler time of the day uh, or in the evening. And it was a time for the, the women to come and socialize and to congregate. And it was very important in that culture that they have that opportunity to come and they socialize and congregate. It was a social gathering. It wasn't just only labor. It certainly was that, to carry the water. But they would come at those times of the day normally. It was not, was not unheard of for people to come at other times of the day. But here's this woman, this particular one. She's here at noon. So what's the apostle trying to tell us? She's there because something is going on in her life where she's really not probably accepted by those that would be coming in the evening or those that had already been there in the morning. She's an outcast in some way. We find out later in the story that her, her lifestyle is such that she, she is, in fact, an outcast in that, in that city. So she, this woman is a, an outcast. We learn here that Jesus is willing to cross all of these barriers. Not only is He willing to cross the barriers into and show us the picture of breaking down that the hostility between peoples, but here's this woman, the representative Samaritan. He comes and talks with her. Now that was not done <laughs> in that culture. Men did not talk to women. It just wasn't done in public. They, they would not talk to a woman in public, even if they were married to the woman. Public discourse between man and a woman was and a single man never talk or touch, of course, a woman in public. Just was not done. Well, here's Jesus, single, a rabbi, a religious man, talking to this woman who's there at noon and not at the other socially uh, congregating hours of the day. She's, she's there by herself. He's talking to this outcast. She's, she's got a past. She's, she's got a, a history. She's an outcast. And then Jesus is talking to her. She doesn't think very highly of herself. Apparently she doesn't have much hope in her heart. But those are the type of people that we're learning about Jesus. Those are the type of people that Jesus is coming to help. In Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we read about that. We read this, those who are well, Jesus says, have no need for a physician. Those who are thinking highly of themselves and are comfortable and well-to-do in their own mind, they have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to sinners. Sinners being those who know that they have separation from God. That they know they're unworthy before God. Jesus is coming in. He's breaking down this barrier with this particular individual. When, she, when he says, give me a drink. Speaking to her. Now this strikes curiosity in the woman that he would even be talking to her. But he says something interesting in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now that sparks her curiosity. This gift of God. This gift of God. What he's offering her is, is eternal life. And he's offering that eternal life now. Offering it to her as, as something not future, not, as, not down the road that she would have it, but she would have it right now. If you knew the gift of God, notice with me the linkage here. May be helpful for us to, to see. In verse 10, he answered her, if you knew the gift of God, the gift of God, 
that, and if, if you knew that gift of God, well, what is the gift of God? If you knew the gift of God, and then, so there's two things operating. If you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who was talking to you, well, that phrase, the gift of God, was commonly understood, commonly known to, to mean the blessings of God. The, all the encompassing blessings of God that God offers in salvation. In the religious mindset of the day, the gift of God was pointing towards that. So if you knew the gift of God, what is that gift that's being given? Well, it, if, if you knew that, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See the connection with the gift of God, living water. He goes on down here and in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I give, I give him. Jesus, so Jesus is saying, I'm giving this water. So I'm giving this gift. I'm giving this water. I'm giving this gift. We'll never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him. Become. So, so we have the gift, the living water, something that Jesus is going to give and it will be in him, him, him or her. It'll be welling up to eternal life. Jesus is speaking to her about eternal life and this gift that he is there to give and he to give all those who would come to him in repentance and faith. So she's, he sparks this curiosity in her. Then he, the interesting thing about that, that Jesus assumes that there's some change needed. That He assumes that a gift is needed. That she needs this gift. She may not see it immediately, but he assumes that if you knew the gift of God, you'd be asking for a drink and I'd be giving you, he would be giving you living water. Jesus assumes that she needs living water. That'll be important for us to recognize in a few moments. There's this, there's this gift that she needs in her life. Now, with the Apostle John in all of his writings in this gospel, we've already seen something that's interesting. He writes on two levels. It's not totally mysterious to us, but we just have to recognize that when, when he speaks of water or speaking of living water, there, there, there's the physical aspect of water quenching physical thirst. But then there's the, the other dimension that Jesus is referring to, the Apostle John referring to in its spiritual. Here Jesus is, certainly has something spiritual on his mind, but she doesn't make the connection between the physical and, and he's actually pointing towards the spiritual. She's keeping her mind in the physical realm. She wants some of that physical water so she won't have to come to this well again and have to deal with this collecting water. Nicodemus was in the same situation where Jesus was using a phrase, using a term that certainly had physical meaning to it, but it really is intended to carry with it something spiritual. So here she says, I, I want some of this water. How, how is it that you, that you would talk to me, a woman of Samaria? How do I get some of this water? And she's thinking physical, thinking that, that that's what she needs. And Jesus is pointing her towards, he wants her to see something spiritual, wants her to see something spiritual is necessary in her life to deal with her situation. Well, we see that this continual free-flowing supply of new life is available. In verse 10, Jesus answered him, answered her. We've already gone over that passage, and it goes on in the second half of it. You would be saying, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living, living water. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Living water. John's always interesting in his the the words that he uses in the gospel. Water is gives us the idea of refreshment. It quenches a thirst. It's it's necessary for a vital living. But then 
he attaches the word living water to this. Now apparently, in the physical, this well that they're at had some life to the water. You know, there are cisterns in our time today as well back in those days. A cistern is dug out and it's a collection of water. Water sits in the cistern. It's collected, especially in arid climates, dry climates. Have a, will have a covering on it to protect it from debris flying into the water, from algae uh, growing. Have a cistern. But this particular well, it seems to, is being fed by some spring. It's a spring-fed well. On the farm that I grew up in, we had a spring-fed well, one of those, and water was pumped about a quarter of a mile from a field out there, pumped up to our, our house. But behind the house, we also had a, a cistern. We didn't drink out of that cistern. It just collected water, had a covering on it, just collected the water there. But the, the good water came from a well that was some distance away, but it was important because it had a spring that was feeding, and it just was a continual supply, and it, and it had a depth that it normally stayed at because it was being fed by that spring. This well, the archaeologists tell us, the scholars tell us, is at least 75 feet deep, probably 100 feet deep or more at that time. She's getting water from this well. The community is getting water from this well. She wonders how Jesus is going to get this living water. He didn't have anything on him to gather it with. Asks, how, how do you do that? She's asking, well, you don't have a bucket. <laughs> how are you going to get this living water? Most of the travelers in that day would carry a skin on them, some animal. And when they came across a water source somewhere, they could throw that skin into the water and they could pull up some water. Apparently, the, Jesus' disciples probably had one of those on them, but he didn't have it himself. And she's wondering, how are you going to go uh, about doing this? Or are you speaking of this living water, how are you going to get or provide any of that living water? There's this free-flowing supply that we see pictured in the words. It's new life that's available. And it's available by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 39, we get a picture of that. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's an interesting picture. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Okay. That is important. Rivers of living water. This is what he was saying. This he was speaking of is the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive but as, for yet, as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But we see in this living water pictures its life and its it's really speaking to the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit, as we know and we've already been exposed to, will, will come and live inside of believers. And there's no end to the refreshment. There's no end to the revitalization that will take place in the person when the Holy Spirit comes. The Spirit will be the, the river of life in that person. And this picture of uh, living water was important in the prophets. In Jeremiah... Chapter 2, we see something like this in verses 1 down through verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 1. I invite you just to turn in your Bibles into Jeremiah chapter 2. And we'll just look at that passage, verse 1 through 13. This is the situation. Verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. I remember your devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown 
Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate it, incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. All the clans of the house of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. We can think of Samaria almost. We could almost just call it the land of Jacob. She's talking about Jacob's well here. Very important to the history of that region. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me and that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? That's a powerful thought went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought, deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Verse 9, therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory. For that which does not profit, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So when Jesus is speaking to this woman, she apparently has some sort of, of knowledge about the things of God. Of course, the Samaritans don't have the prophets. They don't have Jeremiah. She doesn't have Jeremiah. But she has some kind of knowledge of, of God and a deliverer to come. But she's not making this connection. Jesus is speaking of living water. As we saw in John, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. But the, the picture in the Old Testament in, in the scriptures is of God being the provider of this living water. They have forsaken me, says in verse 13, Jeremiah 2, the fountain of living waters. We see a similar thing in Jeremiah 17, 1 through 13. I invite you to turn there this week in your study, Jeremiah 17, 1 through 13. The idea of living waters, the power of God in a person. And even in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, we see this flowing waters coming uh, to life there in that last picture in Revelation. Well, this living water, this, this e eternal life, is, it's a dynamic experience that makes a person alive to the things of God. The words that are being used here are so interesting, and I included a, a little tip sheet there, a, a little grid there for your reference, if you'd like to study on this further during the, the week. Uh, this idea of living water, living water, it means moving and it means active and it means boiling and it means, it means to be cleansed, refreshing, not stagnant water. It means to be moving, living water. And then it says in verse 14, welling up, that word means well, welling up, a spring of water, welling up. It means to leap, it means to gush, welling up to eternal life it, a, a spring of water welling up and that that spring it's a it's a, a fountain it's a, a never-ending supply as we thought about just as a, an example in in the physical realm of a, a well being fed by a live stream a living stream fresh water coming into that well the idea is 
that the water that Jesus gives, this living water, this eternal life, will well up into a person. And it'll never run dry. There's never-ending supply of it. It's, it's a fountain that's going to continually flow and flow and flow and revitalize and empower and strengthen and encourage and give hope. That flow is going to continually come and come and come. It's a dynamic life experience. I think that's important for us to grasp because so many times we think of eternal life as something that, well, I'm going to live my life and I want to make sure I have eternal life at the end. On the day when I draw my last breath, I want to have eternal life then for sure so I can go to heaven. But it's not that. The idea of eternal life, and earlier I showed you the connection between earth, living water, and eternal life. But I think the picture of living water really fills out what is meant by eternal life. It's dynamic. It's the life of God. It's moving. It never runs dry. And the important thing for us to recognize, Jesus makes the assumption that she needs it. <laughs> it the assumption is that the Apostle John is that we need it. All human beings need it. There's an operating assumption that she, if you would have known, if you'd have known the gift of God, if, you'd have, if you would have known the gift, eternal life, welling up, the Spirit of God, if you would have known that, and if you would have known that who it was that was standing here who had the power to give that to you, why, you would have, you would have asked. You would have asked. She wants to know more about this living water. It's a dynamic, as I say, and it's alive. It makes a person alive to the things of God. There's this inner, inner dynamic working so that a person has the desire to live for God. It's not being forced into living for God. It's a deep desire to live for Him and have Him at the center of our thinking and of our life. So there's a worldview disconnect for this woman. And Jesus is helping us to fill that out. And she will herself fill it out, it seems, from the latter verses of this passage. And that disconnect is that her external trials are, are linked to her internal spiritual need. We miss that too. Not much has changed in all of these centuries. We think that the, 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 the spiritual necessity that we need, if we think about it at all, but that we need, we need something for the next life. But it's kind of a thing out here. It's a thing that we attach to ourselves to make us a more rounded, a more a full human being. We attach that to ourselves rather than being the dynamic that di defines our life. And we miss that the, the spiritual need, the spiritual hunger, the spiritual thirst, the, the spiritual vacuum that's in us works its way out into the physical so that the, the physical trials that a person it deals with are linked directly to the spiritual. Doesn't mean, obviously it doesn't mean that, that a, a person who is living for God will not face trials. All of the apostles did, the prophets sure did, that Jesus himself did. History is full of the record of people having, having trials in their life. But those trials, they're linked to their the spiritual situation that they're in. They're linked to the, the internal spiritual life that they have so that those people who are living for God, those people who are living to, for Jesus, those people who have repented and turned towards Jesus, they're responding to those trials differently than those, those who do not have that spiritual dynamic working. Well, the trials come into our life and we, we think that, well, my spiritual life really doesn't have anything to do 
with that. It has everything to do with it because it, it defines and it shapes how we respond to those trials. Jesus is offering this woman living water. He's offering her eternal life. We learn from reading the passage as we go on down. We'll look a little more closely next week. Verse 16, go call your husband. The woman answered, I have no husband. You're right. You have no husband. You have five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. Apparently, in her life, there's been an experience of, of either death or divorce or both. She's currently with a man who's not her husband. And she's out of the well in the middle of the day. Hot, arid climate. She's out in this place. She is a person who's experiencing isolation. She's a woman who doesn't have a lot of hope. She doesn't have a, a, a lot of hope towards a future. She doesn't have interaction with uh, other people. She's, she's been set aside as unworthy. Jesus comes, interacts with her, as, as the creation shit that she is, made in the image of God. And he's saying, it, it, it's not a litany of her do's and don'ts and a, a list of all that she did wrong and what she needs to do now to get right. It's not all of that. He, he says, you need eternal life. <laughs> what, what you need is living water. And that's the answer so surprising, I think, in, in the passage that, that the answer to this worldview disconnect, her sense of loneliness, her sense of isolation, her sense of, of uh, disappointment in her past, her, what about the profound loss in her life that this woman would have experienced? What about the broken dreams that she probably had to have gone through these relationships just to taste of her, her life here. And she wonders why this man would even be talking to her, a woman from Samaria. Why would he lower himself to that, that place? Why would she be, he be doing that? Jesus says, you need, he's, I think, saying, you need hope. You need a, a different direction. You need something that will invigorate you to refresh you so that you have a different perspective on all these trials that you have faced in your life. You need something in your life that will give you a different perspective on yourself and your own self-worth and your self-identity. But you need something that will also reorient you in your understanding of who God is and the wonder of who God is. He's saying that you have this, there's this spiritual disconnect that we see. The answer is this supernatural living water. Overcoming the grief and the loneliness, the isolation, the, the mistakes, the, the disappointments that she surely would have faced. But now, if this living water comes into her life, well, she's in a position to make better choices, better responses to life. She has a future hope. She knows the internal witness of the Spirit. She knows, she'll know that God loves her. Just a different worldview Jesus is bringing into her situation, pointing her towards this is what you need. You need living water. So as we think about eternal life, the eternal life that only comes through Jesus, it's helpful for me, perhaps for you, to think about living water water, the connection, the description. What does that mean? It's living water, that eternal life. Begins the moment a person comes to Jesus, comes in repentance and faith in Jesus, comes into their life and it wells up. It's a dynamic in this life, in this day. He presents that to her as a help to her today in her situation, whatever situation you're in. Helping you today, water, eternal life, welling up to a different kind, a different quality of life. So this woman we see is very unique, very representative of, of people despised by 
the Jews, but loved deeply by God Himself. If you haven't come to Jesus today in repentance and faith, if you haven't come for that living water that we all need, turning from hostility towards God, indifference from, towards God, I invite you to do that today. And for those of you that have done that, perhaps years in the past, think again in a fresh way. I encourage you to think about living water and that dynamic that God is using, the Spirit in our life to shape us and encourage us and give us the hope that otherwise we really would not have. Let's pray.